0: Jogcast Nam 2012 Special Day One with Libby Jones. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Libby Jones, reporting from the first day of the National Astronomy Meeting in Manchester. The National Astronomy Meeting is an annual meeting hosted each year by a different university. This year, NAM has approximately 900 delegates, and is being hosted by the University of Manchester. So, as NAM is on home turf, we thought we'd do a series of Jogcast specials, reporting from the conference each day. I've just been in the session, massive stars from the Milky Way to beyond the local group, and talking in that session was Dr. Ben Davies from the University of Cambridge. And you were talking on red supergiants as cosmic abundance probes. So, hello and welcome to the Jogcast.
1: Hello, thanks.
0: First of all, I'd like to start off with, what is a red supergiant?
1: So a red supergiant is a star that begins its life about eight times more massive than the Sun, a bit more than that. Um, and once it's done hydrogen burning in its core, it puffs up to about the, the, the size of Jupiter's radius and it becomes about a million times brighter than the Sun.
0: That's a very, very big star then and very, very luminous. Mm-hmm. And how do you use these to probe cosmic abundances?
1: Um, well, because they're so bright, you can see them at uh, extra galactic distances, distances of you know, millions of light years. Um, and uh, you look at their spectra, you see absorption lines, and these absorption lines are due to uh, metals such as iron, oxygen, silicon. And uh, basically, just by measuring how strong those lines are, you can tell how much of that element there is. So if you see uh, lots of iron absorption, you know the star's got lots of iron in it and then that tells you about the chemical abundances of the host galaxy.
0: So these stars are just one part of the galaxy. Do you have to look at lots of stars to get an idea of the chemical abundance of each galaxy, or can you tell it from just one star?
1: Well, one star gives you a good idea, but um, over an entire galaxy you expect the abundances to vary. For example, um, in, in regions where you have high star formation rates, you you produce more metals, and those metals get imprinted in the, in the stars... So the idea is to do lots of stars and then effectively make a, a chemical abundance map of the whole galaxy.
0: So if you want to look at spectra, that involves quite a lot of um, telescope time. Yeah. And surely to see one of these objects, and especially in different galaxies, that's going to require an awful lot of telescope time. Can you tell us how you can? Is there a way to speed this up, or do you actually just need to have days and days of big, big telescopes?
1: Well, you can speed it up by being uh, a bit choosy about which parts of the spectrum you, you look at so if, if you if you look at uh, one particular part of the spectrum you might see lots and lots of lines and they're all overlapping and it's a big mess and, and so there's nothing you can do really but if you look at another region of the spectrum you might see smaller number of lines that are well separated and so you don't have to disperse the light quite as much and because you're not spreading it as thinly you don't need to observe it for quite as long to get, to get the signal that you're looking for.
0: And how many objects have you managed to look at and how many different galaxies have you managed to look at so far?
1: Oh, well, we're, we're in the early stages right now, so at the moment we've looked at our galaxy and the two nearest ones, the, the large and small Magellanic clouds. Um, but we are we are at the, the stage where we're going to start doing things that are a bit further away, um, which coincides with uh, the new piece of kit that's going on the big uh, telescope in Chile, where we'll be able to do not one star at once, but 20-odd, you know, all 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 in all at the same time.
0: Oh, so wow, so you can get lots and lots and lots of stars, and mm-hmm. then you can get an idea of the chemical abundances as you go back in time. Is that the idea? So if you look to further further redshifts, or further away, uh, the stars will have gone through less cycles, and births and deaths, and so will there will be less elements. Is that what you're trying to probe?
1: Uh, yeah, that's roughly it. Um, not, not so much with going back in time, but with galaxy mass. So... Um, A very massive galaxy has higher abundances than a lower massive galaxy, and this is due to, um, in in a a very low mass galaxy, the supernova, which which is producing all these heavy elements, when it goes off, it blows all those heavy elements out of the galaxy, and, and that never finds its way into the next generation of stars. So you see this relationship between how massive a galaxy is and its metal content, and that's what we're probing.
0: So the moment you've looked at the Milky Way and then you looked at the LMC, which is a bit smaller than the Milky Way, and then the SMC, which is even smaller, are you seeing what you're expected to see?
1: Yes, we are, which is, is good news. But um, at the moment, we're doing it on objects where we, we kind of know what the answer is going to be, just to just to test everything's working. And the next phase, we'll we'll start to reach out to uh, less well-studied objects, um, and that's where that's where the we're going to really start to earn our money.
0: And is this quite a very good relationship between the mass of a host galaxy and the metallicity of the galaxy?
1: What do you mean by good?
0: well (laughs) it's all right (laughs) it's all right so so there's quite a lot of variables that we don't really know about yet so we need to actually get a constraint
1: that's right yeah so um the the problem that exists so far is we know this relationship exists but we don't know precisely what it is because um, we know one galaxy is more metal rich than another one but we don't know absolutely what that scale is and so our goal is to measure that scale absolutely
0: Well, thank you very much for being on the Jogcast. I wish you lots of time in the future on telescopes so you can get all these spectra, and uh, good luck.
1: Yeah, thanks very much for having me.
0: Thank you. During NAM, there's lots of special energy lunches throughout the week. Today, it is the ALMA lunch, and I managed to catch up with Robert Lang about the latest status of the ALMA array and the results it's starting to take. You've been giving a talk about ALMA and the very first results. Can you briefly describe what you talked about today at NAM? Um,
2: Yes, Um, so now we're getting to the point that the first early science observations from ALMA are um, hitting the streets, and um, my job was to summarise the current status of the array, um, what has happened in the construction project over the last few months, and what the current performance of the array is, and also to look forward to the development programme, because... um, even though ALMA has not yet finished construction, we're still having to think about the upgrades and new things that we can do later on after the end of construction.
0: So how far into construction are we? How many dishes have we got on the site?
2: Um, at the moment, we have 22 12-metre and 7-metre 7, seven metre dishes on site. Essentially, all of, the, um, uh, all of the parts for 58 antennas have actually made it to Chile.
0: Oh wow, and now that is being commissioned and we're getting through the first early science phases, can you briefly describe some of the first observations that ALMA's
2: taken? Um, yes, I mean we've been um, concentrating on um, what's called science verification so far. That's um, observations that have been done by other instruments and we repeat with ALMA just to make sure that we get the right answer. Um, So that covers um, everything from um, raster maps of the Sun with single dishes, regions of star formation, the nearest active galaxy, Centaurus A, that's perhaps the most spectacular result that was shown um, uh, in Richard Hills' talk today, um, out to very high redshift galaxies um, where we're starting to see um, uh, redshifted line emission in in quasars at a redshift of four.
0: So redshift we mean by looking back into the universe quite a long uh, way back?
2: Exactly so, yes.
0: Fantastic. So we're seeing lots of new stuff, and ALMAs, I take it, they're improving and confirming
2: what was previously observed. Well, and indeed, in the later talks uh, this morning, we started seeing the first of the early science results. Um, Mark Swinbank from Durham gave a very nice talk um, where he was um, uh, talking about a survey of submillimetre galaxies um, these are things that had been imaged already by the APEX single dish in Chile. Um, now ALMA has um, has, has imaged um, over 100 of them uh, in a few minutes each, and we have much better fluxes, much better positions, and that's changing the whole situation of uh, what they're identified with um, and uh, what their redshifts are. Um, so it, it, ALMA is really working to do to do good science.
0: Fantastic. I wish you all the luck and planning for future upgrades as well with the new ALMA telescope. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Nice to talk to you, as always. One of the main talks today is on Juno's mission to Jupiter, and I managed to cover a few words with the keynote speaker during coffee. So, joining us on the Jodcast today is Professor Fran Beganel from the University of Colorado, and you've been going to give a talk about the Juno mission to Jupiter. Can you tell us what's so unique about this mission?
3: Well, it's the first time we're going to be flying over the poles, looking down on the aurora. Then we're going to zoom underneath the radiation belts, avoid that hazardous area, uh, over the top of the clouds. And by going very close to Jupiter, we will map out the gravity field and the magnetic field, and that'll tell us about what it's like inside. That's going to be such a
0: detailed look and that no one's ever seen before. Has anyone ever attempted such a dangerous mission and hazardous mission?
3: No, this is the closest we will have been mapping out these things. And it'll tell us about how the planet formed. And then that teaches us a bit about how the solar system formed because Jupiter is the big planet in the solar system, the big bully in the solar (laughs) system. There are now many giant planets around other stars. And so we're sort of learning about how different solar systems form first understand ours in detail and then compare it with how exoplanets form in other places. Because Jupiter's
0: are big Jupiters are what we're detecting mostly in exoplanets, aren't we? So, That's right. So if we get an idea with this mission, then we can have a much idea, better idea about the other exoplanet systems as well.
3: Well, I- indeed. So we'll know how giant planets form. How they end up close to the star is another problem. Someone else will have to <laughs> work on that one. But this will give you lots of detail. Indeed.
0: I, I wish you lots of luck. Thank you very much for joining sure. us today. It's a pleasure. Right, bye-bye. During the conference, there was also many new results and interesting data released. And one such press release today is by George Bender from the University of Manchester. Can you tell us what is your press release?
4: Well, I've been working for several years on processing images of nearby galaxies um, from data in the Spitzer Archive. And I recently had a paper accepted for publication based on these images. And at the same time, I've also made my images available on the web for the first time today.
0: This is new data that's been released that you've processed and made available for science publication, So anyone can go down and download and look at these pictures and do science with them straight away.
4: Anybody with a computer can just look at the images themselves if they want to.
0: And these images are quite cold, so they show cold dust around in different galaxies, is that that correct?
4: I actually have images of both hot dust and cold dust. The cold dust images are kind of blurry, but the hot dust images are actually very, very sharp looking.
0: And we can see these in all different galaxies, all the dust lanes around the spiral arms and all sorts of things like that? Yes. Thank you very much, George, for telling us about your press release. Well, that about wraps it up for the conference today. I hope you enjoyed some of the interviews and will bring you more throughout the week. This episode was produced, recorded and edited by Libby Jones. So, until tomorrow, Jod on! Bye!
5: The Jodcast AM 2012 Special, Day 2 with Jen Gupta. Hello and welcome to the JOBcast. I'm Jen and I'm here on Day 2 of the National Astronomy Meeting in Manchester. Today I'll be going to talks on high-energy astrophysics, cosmic carbon, outreach and hopefully lots more and I'll be trying to bring you short interviews with as many speakers as possible so that you can get a flavour of what's going on today. One of the sessions this morning was on outreach and one of the speakers in that session was Dr Rob Simpson from Oxford University who was talking about planet hunters and now I've managed to grab him and Chief Zookeeper Dr Chris Lintott in the corridor. So Rob could you tell us a bit about your talk today?
6: Yeah, I, I was talking about, uh, we collaborated at the Zooniverse with uh, BBC Stargazing Live, which was here, um, it was in Joshua uh, Bank, and we found an exoplanet. So we, we took three days, we had a million classifications on planethunters.org, and over 100,000 people took part, and we helped discover an exoplanet, or technically an exoplanet candidate, uh, but a very good candidate. Well,
7: we've got CAC time, hopefully, this week. To, to this never, week? Yeah, there's a pesky background. We found out was, we saw the transit, we saw the dip in light when the planet gets in front of its parent star. And that's what Threppleton and Holmes and their friends on Stargazing Life helped us do.
6: Yes. Yeah, so um, Lee Thrappleton and Chris Holmes were the two members of the public that first spotted two of the separate transit events for this exoplanet right. during the three days of stargazing. Yeah, life.
7: But the trick is we need to rule out there's a pesky background star that's just close enough that could be faking the transits. So if it's an eclipsing binary, if it's two stars going around each other, and so uh, we've used UKIRT data with the help of the Kepler team. and Now we need to to get Keck on it, and hopefully we can turn it from a planet candidate into a proper planet. Yeah. Anyway, that's what Rob was talking about. That's
5: what Rob was talking <laughs> about. Can we back up a sec? Um, so, Planet Hunters use Kepler data, is that right?
6: Yes, uh, Planet Hunters, you're looking at light curves from Kepler. Uh, The Kepler spacecraft is staring at about 100,000 stars. Very, very sensitive instrument. So, uh, I'm always told that it could see a mosquito passing in front of a headlight, which I guess is a slightly useful analogy. (laughs) But but it's very, very sensitive, and if you're aligned such that the planet going around the star is between you and the star, then you'll see a slight dip in the light as the planet goes across. And those are the dips that users on the Planet Hunters website are trying to mark and find uh, and, and tell us they're there.
5: How many have you found so far?
6: Oh, uh, planet candidates, I'm not sure what the total is now.
7: Candidates were well over 100. Actual planets, published ones, we've just got paper with numbers 3 and 4. is nearly accepted. I'll be talking about those tomorrow, so this Heck, is a sneak yes. preview. Um, and then we've got a long list of other candidates. We're finding that people are particularly good at finding weird and wonderful planets. And so... We made an. Do you remember there was that planet discovered last summer going around, a binary star? Yeah, the the Tatooine. That's the one. Yeah, absolutely. So we had an independent discovery of that, which doesn't count for anything because we weren't (laughs) quick enough. But we think our users are particularly good at finding those because the presence of the two stars confuses the computer, the algorithms that the Kepler team use. And so we're just getting to the point where we can follow up on these because the patch of sky that Kepler's staring at is in Cygnus summer constellation in the northern hemisphere and so it's just getting to the point where you can observe it from Hawaii, and so we've got some follow-up lined up over the summer and we hope we'll have plenty more planets soon
5: And Planet Hunters is one of many Zooniverse projects, are there any others that you'd like to talk about?
7: We should definitely talk about the Milky Way project. Yeah, we'll yeah, uh,
6: the Milky Way project is a sort of bubble hunting if you, if you like the analogy, uh, we've got Spitzer data, beautiful images of these uh, star-forming regions all in the galactic plane of the Milky Way and we're asking people to draw bubbles and to find other objects in that data. And they've been doing that for, well, it launched at about the same time as Planet Hunter's did. So it's December 2010. And we've created Astronomy's largest catalogue of infrared bubbles. So there's a talk later about that, in fact. <laughs> and there's a poster up here at now. This is good doing now. NAM, yeah. NAM podcasting. Um, and the Milky Way project has moved into a sort of second phase now, where users on the site are seeing... Uh, the catalogue of bubbles that they helped discover. So we've entered a sort of meta Milky Way project where people are seeing all these gorgeous bubbles and they're now taking more precise measurements so that we can do better science. And one of the things we want to get out of this is to understand how stars form. We want to know if stars trigger the formation of other stars. And we want to understand the dynamics and uh, the properties of the interstellar medium, that, that beautiful nebulous material you often see in images.
7: The only thing I, I'd add is that it's really cool, uh, for me at least, because we've, we've had Galaxy Zoo for nearly five years now, and that produced real scientific papers. But Planet Hunters has papers, Solar Stormwatch has papers, Milky Way Project is now producing real results. Uh, one project that hasn't yet, because we need more people's help, is the Galaxy Zoo Mergers Project. This yes. is where we're getting people to smash galaxies together on their computer and fiddle with the simulations and see if you can match an observed merger. Now, we're nearly there. We've, we've taken a close look at 100 mergers. We've had more than 5 million simulations run on people's computers. Um, but we need, we're sort of in, know, what is this, the Christmas special of Galaxy Mergers. We've got the best of the best up against each other. And so we just <laughs> relaunched the site. Don't laugh. So we just relaunched the site. And if you want to see the most spectacular simulations and mergers and help us uh, find the definitive ones that will go on to the grand final of being in a paper and helping us understand Galaxy Mergers, that we need people's help right now. Uh, And that's at mergers.galaxyzoo.org.
6: Yeah, and I I would say, I mean, you talked about we have other projects. Zooniverse.org has all the projects listed by category. There's lots of them. Uh, You'll find mergers there and and all the others, and it's well worth a look. There's there's far more there than most people think now.
5: Just before we finish, um, you launched a new project recently called SETI Live which is something different. that You're actually getting live data, is that right, from the
7: telescope? Yeah, we didn't even... I can't believe I didn't talk about SETI. Yeah, this is live data <laughs> from uh, the Allen Telescope Array. And so it's new for us because this is literally as the data comes off the telescope and we're looking for aliens. So with Jill Tata, who many people know, who's the inspiration behind uh, the main character in Contact, which is a film I grew up loving, and thinking that radio astronomers listened to... They get uh, me started dishes. on that yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> we, we are in Manchester <laughs> <General> <laughs> Bank, so. um, but but SETI so so the point is that we're looking in crowded regions of the radio spectrum where there is a lot of interference in which the computers at SETI have never been able to sort through but we think if we can get people in the loop live and we can get a better understanding of what's going on we may just find a signal obviously the odds are well, astronomical but Um, the telescope's there, it sends its data up to the website, and if somebody marks something and it's confirmed by other users, then within three minutes we can get the telescope back and pointing at the signal again. It's very different from things like SETI at home, where they're mostly using archive data. So SETI live's exciting because you might find aliens. Um, It's (laughs) exciting because it's live data, but it's also also exciting because this sort of live mode is, I think, where the Zooniverse is going in the next few years. There's lots lots of places where putting human brains in the process of collecting data is going to be very important.
5: Well, thank you very much, Rob and Chris. I've got to say this is a little bit weird because it feels like I'm listening in on a Recycled Electrons recording. It's probably what our listeners feel like yeah, when they well, actually
7: don't meet dogcasters. Yeah, I mean, this, this is probably, Recycled Electrons is our can we make a podcast with no effort? Effort. Um, maybe we, we can. can. <laughs> maybe we can. We can't aspire to be the dogcast, but maybe, we're, maybe with the um, extra show, the extra half hour <laughs> with wine tacked on the bottom the of That's right, there yeah. you go.
5: Well, thank you very much. Another of the sessions on this morning was on extragalactic transients and I'm here with Tana Joseph from Southampton University who was speaking about some x-ray sources. Could
8: you tell us about your talk? Um, I studied the elliptical galaxy NGC4472 and we found three, we um, know of three very interesting point sources in this galaxy. Um, two of them are definitely black holes and one of them is a possible black hole candidate. Um. In terms of my research, I really wanted to be a black hole so I can write a paper (laughs) about it. Um, And then the other two candidates are... um, One is the first black hole ever to be discovered in a globular cluster, and the other one is also another black hole in a globular cluster because I think black holes in globular clusters are kind of like buses. You wait thousands of years for one to turn up, but then once one does, another one comes along three years later. So a globular cluster, is that a group of stars within this galaxy? Uh, Globular clusters are dense groups of stars, um, not within the galaxy itself, but orbiting around the galaxy, like natural satellites. Okay. And something that people always ask is, if they're black holes, how can you see them in X-rays? Could you explain that? Um, That's a very good question that I also get asked quite a lot. (laughs) Um, The way we detect them in X-rays is not... The x-rays aren't coming directly from the black hole, but they're coming from um, an accretion disk around the black hole, which is just a disk of really hot um, and energetic matter that's formed around the black hole, almost like we think about a drain, um, like in your bath, the plug, the water swirls around before it falls into the plug. It's like that.
5: And these black holes, are they... Um, stellar black holes, so are they like the kind of mass of our sun, or are these really big ones.
8: Um, they are not the supermassive black holes, not the really big ones. They are, I guess, between the mass of our sun and about fifty or so solar masses. Yeah. Okay. And where where is this research going? So what
5: what can we find out about black holes and about these galaxies from us?
8: Um, Well, first of all, there's um, not. I wouldn't use the word controversy, but there is. Uh, a very old paper that was written in 1969 and they said that this person put forward that uh, black holes shouldn't exist in globular clusters because okay. because of the motions inside the globular clusters they would actually be ejected All right. and um, so people have sort of just gone by that and used that as sort of a gospel truth um, and my supervisor dared to be different and actually found these black holes in the globular clusters where everyone just thought that they wouldn't, they wouldn't exist there. That's
5: really interesting, thank you very much for talking to us. Another of the sessions this morning was on cosmic carbon, and I'm here with Dr. Paul Woods to find out about his talk.
9: So today I talked about um, doing some chemical modelling of extragalactic carbon stars. Um, So we have some observational evidence from uh, Spitzer spectra. These are mid-infrared spectra that um, in carbon stars we see a very uh, rich chemistry in in the circumstellar regions and we find very strong absorption features due to acetylene which is a very important molecule when you're looking at the the chemistry around carbon stars. It it feeds feeds a lot of other carbon chemistry and we find lots of long carbon chain molecules forming. So we see this sort of um, indirectly from from, well, we see this directly from observations but nobody has really looked at what effect this has on the circumstellar chemistry. Um, and in the formation of complex molecules. So
5: you're looking around the stars, not actually at the stars.
9: Right. Yes. So um, what we see in in the Spitzer observations is the entire star. But the modelling that I've been doing is in the, the regions around the stars. Yes, because that's they're the regions that are most interesting from a from a chemistry point of view. That's where we find all the all the large complex molecules. And
5: so, what does this tell us about carbon stars?
9: Um. This tells us um, a lot about the molecules that they produce and, and then push into the interstellar medium. Um, and by observing these molecules, these complex molecules in some cases, we can find out a lot about the, the sort of physical parameters of the carbon stars as well, their, their temperatures, their, the rates at which they push out matter into space, um, and the, the densities and the radiation fields that we find in these, um, these galaxies as well.
5: Thank you very much.
9: Thank you. I'm here
5: with Professor Mike Edwin, of Cardiff university, and you've been talking in the RAS Community Session about creating an astronomy museum. Can you
10: tell us a bit about that? Well, in a sense, a museum. but It may just be a virtual idea, idea of a museum, not an actual museum. The idea is that we're trying to look at what do we do with all the stuff that's been created over the past century or so to do with astronomy. A lot of departments have equipment, records, memories, about doing important astronomy research over that time. And yet we haven't really formulated a policy if people ask us, what do you do with that? And the problem is if a head of department needs space in his department, one of the first things that may go is old equipment, this space is expensive, recording it is expensive and so on. And we're trying to have a, an effort over the next year or so to really get some idea of what the best way of recording stuff, preserving stuff, noting where stuff is in order to preserve what is important for the future.
5: And is this something that amateur astronomy societies can get involved
10: in? It, it certainly. And um, we'd certainly be interested in hearing from amateur societies, particularly if they have particular ideas how they would like to see things preserved and what they would like to be able to visit or access either through the web or through visits and so on. And also, too, if they know of or have even have in their possession particular artefacts that they may want to keep and preserve that's fine but if we knew about it it would allow people to do research on them or know about them if possible and I know there are things in amateur possession which are important artefacts from the history of astronomy so if also to if amateurs know about things locally that are going to be binned or uh, recycled, as I suppose it'd be called these days, we would be very interesting to know. What we're trying to do is to set up a way of dealing with that, and in particular the difficult thing about knowing how to assess whether we should, should or should not keep something. Should we, should we record this or should we not? How do you have some idea about what's really going to be important for the future?
5: If people do have something that they think you might be interested in, is there a website, or should they just get in touch with you?
10: The best thing is to contact us through the Astronomical Heritage Committee at the Royal Astronomical Society.
5: Brilliant! Thank you very much. Well, that wraps it up for day two of the National Astronomy Meeting. I hope you enjoyed this episode. The editor and producer of this show was Jen Gupta. So, until tomorrow, jot on! <laughs>
11: Special, Day 3 with Christina Smith. Hello and welcome to the third day of the JOGCAST Nam Specials. Today there have been sessions on loads of different aspects of astronomy and astrophysics, Um, including binary star systems, cosmology, exoplanets and the nature of galaxies. I managed to catch up with a few of the speakers and poster presenters earlier today. I'm here now with uh, Professor Bob Nicol from Portsmouth University um, who is giving a talk about the Dark Energy Survey. Um, Can you just give us a little bit of background information on what dark energy is?
12: Sure. um, It's going to be pretty quick. We don't know what it is.
11: Um,
12: It's... Okay. Appeared about a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um, some astronomers were observing distant supernovae and appeared that they were moving uh, quicker away from us than expected. Mm-hmm. And uh, that caused us to reevaluate our model of the universe. And we now have a model of the universe where the expansion of the universe appears to be accelerating, not slowing down. And this is a bit odd, yeah. <laughs> because when you usually think about gravity, as you've heard, gravity sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it pulls things together. And so we would have expected that the stuff in the universe, the normal matter, would have actually slowed down the acceleration. Mm-hmm. Whereas in reality, what we do seem to be seeing is that, expa- that expansion is uh, going, getting faster and faster and faster. Okay. So what we've had to do is look for something that we can put in the universe... That kind of acts as a repulsive force, or an anti-gravity, and that uh, thing we call dark energy. So it's repulsive and causes the acceleration of the universe. And one option is this famous uh, thing called Einstein's cosmological constant, and so that's our favourite model for dark energy. But there are new, there is many models of dark energy <laughs> as there are astronomers.
11: Okay, <laughs> so there's lots of different options to be pursued. Absolutely. And the dark energy survey, is that, is that looking for evidence of it or looking for...
12: So I think we're, we're coming out of a decade where we're now accepting the fact that the universe, 75% of the energy in the universe is caught up in this dark energy. Okay. So it's the majority of the energy in the universe. So now I think we, we, we've accepted it. We've had a decade of, of being sceptical mm-hmm. and going, oh, I don't believe that, <laughs> to a point now where we've, we really have to understand it And so the dark energy survey, I like to say, is the first survey that really starts to understand what dark energy could be, rather than just confirming its existence.
11: What's it actually going to be looking at?
12: So what the dark energy survey has is it has four probes. So it's going to use four different objects to try and understand this dark energy. So the first one are clusters of galaxies, so Mm -hmm. it's going to try and find clumps of matter out there in the universe... And the Dark Energy Survey will see further and wider than any other survey to date. Mm-hmm. So it will see lots of these things. Okay. Uh, it's also going to use a technique called gravitational lensing, which looks for uh, the distortions of gal- distant yeah. galaxies because of the nearby matter. It's going to just look at the clustering of galaxies on very large scales. And the one thing I'm mostly interested in is it's also going to use these wonderful supernova mm-hmm. that were used to originally confirm the existence of dark energy.
11: So the instrument that's being used, is it, is it one instrument? Is it a collection of instruments? Is it?
12: So it's one instrument. It's a brand-new camera that we mm-hmm. built. This thing is awesome, okay? OK? Imagine a camera that's the size of a settee. Okay. OK. All right. <laughs> And pretty huge. It's pretty huge, okay. It's it's a ton. Okay, so okay, it's big. Wow. All right. And it has uh, five hundred and seventy megapixels. Five
11: okay. okay. Five hundred and
12: seventy megapixels. Five hundred so try and buy that in curries, all right? <laughs> you can't go out and buy this thing. All right, it's it's an order of magnitude than what you can get commercially. Okay. And so that's what we've been building over the last few years.
11: Okay, wow, that is, that sounds like an uh, awesome instrument.
10: <laughs>
11: and this camera, is it, is it, is it, is it um, being used from the ground, or is it something that 's being used up in space or
12: so we 're using it now on the ground with mm-hmm. a, a, a relatively old telescope the okay. CTIO four meter telescope in Chile, okay. so we have refurbished that telescope and putting this okay. camera on yeah. and that's we 're going to have uh, five years using that survey, that ground based telescope to survey most of the southern sky
11: and you're hoping. You're hoping in that you'll.
12: So what we hope. Uh, so what we. The numbers we expect are we're going to detect about 300 million galaxies. Okay. Okay. About 4,000 supernova, and somewhere in the region of about 100,000 clusters of galaxies. Oh, and wow. the key is, is you. Not only do you need that large number of objects. Mm-hmm. But the camera also provides the best images we can capture from the ground. Okay. Because some of the techniques we're trying to use, like this weak lensing technique, really does need pristine images. You know those images you see from the Hubble Space Telescope. Yeah, yeah, They, they absolutely need sharp, they've got to be sharp. Because we're going to measure the shapes of those galaxies. Okay. So it's not just that we wanna see the galaxies, we wanna measure things about them we want to measure their shape their color their orientation mm-hmm. and that requires slightly better data than we've had to date so for the next five years we'll be using the dark energy survey that i think will give us a clue as to whether this uh, this thing called dark energy is what is the cosmological constant. Mm-hmm. this thing that einstein had put in his equations now 80 years ago uh, all the present data points in that direction, but we 're not one hundred percent sure, mm-hmm. so I think the dark energy survey will tell us if it 's the cosmological constant, but that really doesn 't satisfy us because okay. we don 't actually know what the cosmological constant is okay? Okay. so it 's like moving it 's moving the goalposts <laughs> really it 's saying you know uh, it 's relabeling the problem at okay. some level but in the in the next decade we're going to have a satellite called Euclid, mm-hmm. which is now the same size as DES okay. in terms of the size of the camera.
11: But,
12: but imagine putting that into space now.
11: Okay, so it's going to dressed. So
12: imagine having HST images <coughs> over the whole sky.
11: Wow, that would be amazing. <laughs> imagine
12: the Hubble Deep Field it's across amazing. the whole sky. This is wow. what Euclid's going to deliver. And what Euclid will do is it will test one final thing about this dark energy mm-hmm. problem. One way out is to say that Einstein's theory of gravity is incomplete. It's not that okay. it's wrong, because yeah. it works. It works very well on this Earth. Mm-hmm. But when we get on cosmological scales, general relativity may not actually be the correct theory of gravity. Okay. Okay? Euclid will nail that. Euclid will be one of the definitive tests of general relativity on cosmological scales. So over the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to go from Des telling us whether it's the cosmological constant mm-hmm. to 15 years from now, Euclid telling us whether it's general relativity.
11: Wow, so it's really gonna, they're both really going to help our, our, our knowledge of, of dark energy and what it, what it really is. Exactly. Okay, sounds absolutely fantastic, and I wish you all the best with it. Thank all right, very thanks much. very much. I'm here now with Kelly Hambleton, who's a PhD student at UClan and has just
13: given a talk on heartbeat stars. Um, what are heartbeat stars? (laughs) So heartbeat stars are a new class of eccentric binary system Mm -hmm. Um, they demonstrate increases in the light as opposed to the usual decrease from the eclipse and um, this is because the two stars are interacting with each other uh, to the point that they deform each other and you see a greater surface area of the stars and so instead of uh, the usual dip for an eclipse, you get an increase in light uh, at the time of closest approach.
11: Okay, so you said that they were an eccentric um, pair, so that means that they're on a, a, a non-circular orbit. Yes. Yeah, and um, and you said that they, they eclipse their two stars that
13: are going to pass in front or behind of each other. Is there anything...? Okay, so they don't always eclipse, mm-hmm. so... Um, as they pass close to each other, you get the increase in light. Some of them do actually eclipse, so you also get a dip in the light and Mm -hmm. an increase in the light. Uh, Other interesting things that you can see is um, tidally induced pulsations, so you get a kind of ringing, and it's because you get um, pulsations that occur on a set number of times per orbit, so you'll get uh, five pulsations within an orbit, and this is a concise number. So when you fold the light curve, you'll actually see... What do you mean by fold the light curve? Uh, when you when you phase the light curve, so if you put... So if you have a time series of, say, 50 days and the orbit is two days, mm-hmm. then you fold the light curve every two days' of, worth of orbit, so you have just one full orbit. So you sort of, like, stacking it. Sa- stacking it yeah. on top of each other, yes, essentially. Um, then you s- still see the pulsations, and that's because they occur the same number of times every orbit.
11: Okay, and you said they were tidally caused, so that's, yeah. that's just caused by
13: the other star interacting Yes. With it. Yeah. Yes, so, so stars pulsate naturally. Um, well, many most stars pulsate naturally, and um, it's because of the different cavities within the stars and the different ionisation zones within the stars, and that, tells, that decides what kind of pulsations the stars will have, uh, the periods of the pulsations, so how long they last. And if the period of a pulsation is uh, similar or very, very close to the period of the orbit, or if there are, say, for example, you get five uh, pulsations within one orbit, so it's a precise number, um, then the tide and the pulsation will interact with each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, this causes what you call a resonance. So the star, the pulsations get a kick every time they get close closely okay. the star so you get like this tidal interaction and these pulsations uh, have uh, an increased amplitude to what they would usually have if if there wasn't a binary system okay well thank you very much for
11: starting to talk to me and yeah have a have a nice rest of the conference all right thank you and finally i'm here with natalie sakushpek who is presenting a poster about her work which is entitled the search for rare objects in you kids um so
14: first of all what's you it's a white field near infrared survey that goes deeper than two so it can detect fainter sources. Okay, um, is it is it done from from space? No, it's located in Hawaii. Okay, on nice. On top of Mauna <laughs> so we got to go there That's, and observe, which uh, was very nice. <laughs> and um, these rare objects, what sort of things are they? I'm looking for either. Objects that are very far away, like Mm -hmm. very high-redshift quasars, which would give us an idea about constraining the history of the universe or give us more information about reionization. But on the other hand, I also look for galactic objects that are very cool because they get picked out in the near infrared as well. I'm looking for Y-brown dwarfs, which are the coolest brown dwarfs, with temperatures between 300 and 500 Kelvin. And because the temperatures are so low, they're very close to the temperatures of exoplanets. So it could give us insight into... The atmospheres of exoplanets
11: okay that's, that's awesome
14: <laughs> and then I'm also looking for ultra cool white dwarfs which are the mm-hmm. end of a star and I'm looking for white dwarfs with well temperatures around 4000 Kelvin or below okay that's yeah uh, Yeah, because cool. the way white dwarfs work the cooler they get the slower the cooling is mm-hmm. so if an object is this cool it means it's very old Okay, which would help us constrain the age of the Milky Way I'm also. I was also searching for a completely unknown class of objects, like something we didn't expect to find. Mm-hmm. So something you weren't expecting to find, like well, we we didn't know what we were really searching for. That's why we tried to. We didn't look for specific things. Okay. We used chi-square template fitting to fit templates to a data set of over 4.7 million objects. Okay. And if the fit was bad to any of the given templates, which were stars. White dwarfs, um, quasars of any sort below the redshift of 5 or 5.9, mm-hmm. um, or brown dwarfs that are warmer than, say, 500 Kelvin. Mm-hmm. Then they were fitted well with the templates we had okay. and were removed from our sample, and we just picked out the objects that couldn't be fitted. So they okay. are considered rare and interesting. Okay. So we hoped to find some sort of unknown class of objects, which we haven't detected as of yet. But well, we have picked out some moderately interesting objects okay
11: um just one thing that you said earlier is you used a chi-squared template is that some sort of statistical analysis tool that... yes okay. that is okay cool so it's just using statistics so yeah okay. it's the,
14: it's a the statistical tool that also considers errors which is very important because obviously every observation has errors
11: okay brilliant well i wish you all the best in the rest of your work and enjoy the rest of the conference thank you very much i will in her interview, Natalie mentions high redshift quasars. And just to clarify this, these are quasars that are a really long way away, which means that they're looking at them uh, from a long way back in time. Specifically, she mentions quasars at a redshift of about five, which means quasars which are around about 12 billion light-years away, which is a pretty long way away. <laughs> and finally, one of today's press releases concerns a huge tornado which has been discovered on the sun by Dr. Li and Dr. Hugh Morgan of the University of Aberystwyth. The Atmospheric Imaging Assembly, um, which is an instrument, it's a telescope, on board the Solar Dynamic Observatory, um, was used to observe the sun on the 25th of September um, in 2011. And this actually observed superheated gases um, which were being sucked up from the base of a prominence up into the upper atmospheres, upper parts of the atmosphere of the sun, um, similar to that of a tornado, um, which is really, really cool. And there's a video being shown about it later today, and that sounds amazing. And I will link to more information on the show notes so that you can find out some more about this. And that brings us to the end of day three of Nam. The editor and producer was Christina Smith. So I hope you've enjoyed it, and until tomorrow, jot on!
15: The JOGCAST, NAM 2012 Special, Episode 4, with Mark Perver Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Mark Perver and this is the final day of the National Astronomy Meeting here in Manchester. It's been four days, it seems to have gone incredibly quickly, Uh, already the final day is rushing away from us, but uh, it's been absolutely packed. We've heard about magnetic fields, pulsars, star formation, the sun, exoplanets, exomoons, comets, alternative theories of gravity, numerical simulations, submillimeter astronomy, you name it, it's all been here this week. And there's been a wide range of social events, of course, as well. There's been a football tournament, there's been a trip out to Jodrell Bank, and there was a conference dinner last night in Manchester Town Hall. That seems to have taken its toll on a few people, because I saw one or two having a little bit of a snooze in the morning plenary, uh, which I know was not to do with the talk, because it was very, very interesting. Some people have been burning the candle at both ends, but it's been great fun. So on the final day, I've been asking people... ...for their impressions of the week and their favourite experiences... ...and also I've caught up with a few of the people during the day who've spoken... ...and I'm also going to do a little summary of the press releases and one of the sessions today. The first thing I did was get a bit of a head start yesterday evening... ...by talking to members of the Liverpool Astronomical Society... OK, well, it's, it's Thursday evening, and um, I've just been having a chat to members of the Liverpool Astronomical Society about what they've been doing here at NAM during the day. So perhaps you could introduce yourselves and, and tell me what you've, been, what you've been up to here today.
16: So, yeah, hi, I'm Rob Johnson, and uh, we've had a couple of solar telescopes, uh, H-alpha solar telescopes, and I've uh, been showing passing professional astronomers out of the conference uh, views of the sun through the telescope. Right, views in H-alpha. So yeah, we've got a, a little little PST telescope, which is a relatively cheap beginner's solar telescope, and uh, but you can still see all the details on the sun. There's, there's not much activity today. Uh, there's a sunspot. We've seen a few prominences, a few filaments across the disk, and uh, earlier on there was um, within about ten minutes. Uh, a prominence appeared. Very bright prominence appeared on the uh, the southern limb. I think it was, and uh, that that was great, wasn't it? Dave? It's been excellent. Yeah,
17: yeah. Um, very dynamic. The sun constantly changing. Um, you stand there. You you have a chat. You go back to the telescope. It's changed. Prominences sprout up. They dissipate. Little ones come and go. Filaments. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. And it's just minutes then for them to come in. In minutes, yeah. over over half an hour, we we, we could see prominences growing and then they just disappeared and you think where's it gone? <laughs> Absolutely amazing to watch And what's the sort of size of those things that you've seen? goodness uh, when you, you get small mm. loops uh, as a prominence grows and it falls back to the, 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 the sun it uh, forms maybe a loop the earth can sit under that loop there was a small su- uh, remember it's a su- very small sunspot near yeah. the centre of the disc mm. that is the size of the earth Right <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're so small and the sun so, so big yeah oh, it's unbelievable it, it brings it all to you know real terms I think when yeah. you see the scale of the thing
15: it's nice to be able to do it during the day as well do a bit of astronomy during the day That's especially great. in Manchester it's <laughs> unprecedented amount of sunshine we yeah. seem to have had this week well
16: yeah we were, we were really lucky that it was completely clear once again we thought the clouds might come in but it was another good day yeah
15: so it's the H-alpha, it's that particular frequency that gives you uh, the chance to look at these prominences and things,
7: is
16: it? Yeah, it, it's centred around 6.56 nanometers. so H-alpha. Um, uh, we had a, a second telescope, didn't we, which is yeah. uh, somewhat upmarket, cost a couple of thousand pounds. Uh, high, a larger objective, a 60 millimeter objective, uh, still same same H-alpha. Same band, yeah. yeah. Um, but being a larger objective, it gives you higher resolution image, and we had some great views through that. Certainly yeah, did some good detail. The, the weather has been good; it's clear, uh, although with a slight
17: haze. Um, we could see as the haze came and went, the seeing conditions equally come and go. Okay. And in those moments of good seeing, the detail just pops out at you. Mm. If the filament was there, then it wasn't, then it was, and you've just got to get your eye used to seeing in red. Right. The sun is yeah. is red, so we're looking in red light, and I don't think we're used to doing this normally. Mm-hmm. So you've got to get dark adapted in the daytime, <laughs> okay. which is a bit unusual for <laughs> you. Yeah.
15: And uh, how many,
17: well, roughly how many people do you think you've
15: um, got to look through the telescope today? Look Goodness. <laughs> I've <lost Yeah>. count. <laughs> um, I don't
16: know, maybe 30 or 40 people, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And what sort of uh,
15: reaction did you get from the, the delegates in now when they were having a look <laughs> through? Uh, yeah, I mean,
16: they they were really interested. We had, obviously, some sort of um, galactic astronomers and things which ne- never sort of look at the sun that much, and some planetary folks who equally don't look at the sun. Um, but there were some solar physicists who would never really looked through a telescope <laughs> at the sun... <laughs> And uh, it was great that one guy brought his laptop along and showed us um, the live SDO image from uh, from just 10 minutes ago. And we were able to compare that image with what we could see through the telescope. Brilliant.
17: So, yeah. what, what I did find amusing was the gentleman, I, I don't know his name, but I only saw him very briefly, and as he walked past, we said, we'd like to have a look at the sun. He said, so, it's OK, I've got one of those. Unbeknown to us until we found out later, he's actually got a, a, a telescope stuck to the side of the International Space Station, observing oh, the sun. Um, wow. I must find out who it was. <laughs> I've already got one of those. I thought, you must have a set of solar of or something, yeah. you know. <laughs> on the space station, I mean.
15: I <laughs> Excellent. Well, one of the delegates who was, who was having a look today was the plenary speaker, Fran Baganel. So you, is it something that you get to do as a, as a hobby very much to, actually looking through a telescope?
3: No, I'm, I'm terrible about looking <laughs> through telescopes and uh, I have not seen much through the telescope. But what I thought was interesting is that m- this morning we had one of the plenary talks, excellent talk by Alan Hood from St Andrews, an overview of all these observations of the sun made by space and so on. All the detail, the stuff coming and going. But the thrill was really to come down here and uh, look through a telescope with my own eyes and those photons were coming from the sun through the telescope, and into my eyes. And there's something special about that. It's, yes. Uh, you know you can look at all the space images you want, but to actually see a planet or the stars or or uh, uh, the sun with your own eyes and have that know that those photons actually travelled from the object and came to your eyes is something special. I think it's important.
15: It is, isn't it? Yeah, I think we should probably remind people not to look directly at the sun because that's too many photons. But um, uh, I guess for that reason, because it's so bright, you actually don't really... Look at the detail of the sun. It's about the same size as the full moon on the sky, but you never get the chance to look at it unless you're using a special piece of equipment.
3: Well, there are easier ways to do it. You can project it onto the wall, which is sort of what Newton did and other people like that. (laughs) Galileo, historically, Mm. measured the sunspots through projection, Um, but uh, or you can go to your amateur astronomy society and they'll have the equipment to help you do it. So. You know, I guess the next eclipse here in visible in the UK will be 2017. Um, find out where your local uh, astronomy group is and go and uh, hook up with them. Okay.
15: Well, the last thing I'll ask then is: Are any of you going to be up at 5am on June the 6th to watch the transit of Venus?
17: <laughs> yes. Yeah.
16: <laughs> uh, we, we sp- I'm feel Sure, we won't see it, but uh, British weather. We will be there. You never know. We,
17: we did see the last one, but we went to initially we went to Madrid. But well, we ended up down at Portugal on the border there. That's right, yeah. Uh, a long journey. Yeah. But because of the thunderstorms, we had to move to where the clear skies were. Um, Britain isn't so kind with the weather uh, and the clear skies. No. <laughs> but we'll do our best, and yeah, we as we always we do. And we'll worship the clouds, as always. <laughs> That's okay. Easy. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Mark.
8: Great.
3: Right.
15: This morning's plenary session was all about exoplanet hunting with the Kepler spacecraft, so I got the views of amateur astronomer Andrew Glester. I've caught up with a podcast listener, which is Andrew Glester, who's here um, at um representing the West Inchbury Astronomical Society. We've just been in a talk about uh, Kepler, the mission to find exoplanets. So how did
18: you find, how did you find that talk? Oh it's fascinating I think it's uh, yeah, I think it's one of the most interesting parts of astronomy at the moment for me I think it's, you know looking for those those planets out there and I'm just a, an amateur you know stand in my backyard you know, with my telescope and look up and dream about what might be out there and it's just really nice to know you know that the science behind it and that there's people out there looking at it you
15: know it's a really kind of burgeoning topic now there's yeah. really a lot of uh of exoplanets, all of a sudden.
18: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's really capturing the, uh, the the public's imagination as well with that sort of thing. I think you know, I, there's, I know there's uh, a slight overstatement of a uh, of sort of second Earth that come out in the press, but you expect that from the press, you know. And then if people look deeper into that, then that's all good, I think.
15: Yeah. So about the rest of the week, you've been here all week, all the four days. What have you yeah. most uh, enjoyed or picked up on?
18: Well, it. it, um, it I'm, as I say, I'm, a, I'm an amateur, but I'm, I, I do sort of science communication through through live shows, and uh, there's two reasons for me being here. One is uh, is just pure interest, and the other is that I'm I'm making this this live show, which um, very very uh, briefly will will start with the Big Bang and end with the message that uh, Carl Sagan once said, which is. Uh, we are a way for the cosmos to know itself. So I'm looking for ideas to sort of explore in the show, which um, will leave the audience in no doubt that we are indeed a way for the for the cosmos to know itself. Uh, and and this is the, exactly the kind of um, conference where you can find that. When I say that there's not many like this, are there? Really? No. But, you know, it, it's just uh, uh, as an amateur to sit to sit and listen to the. Um, to the to, to the proper people doing you know talking about what they're actually doing is is really interesting and to see sort of where everything is up to because you read about these things but to actually uh, hear people talking about them is, is is you know really good really really interesting
15: so was there any particular thing apart from obviously the exoplanets that was kind of your favourite thing or that you found very interesting
18: um, I, I I enjoyed the uh, wonders of the solar atmosphere talk because. Um, the aurora is, is something that's you know sort of also happening a lot at the moment with the, yeah. the, the activity around the sun, and it was really interesting to see that because uh, uh, I don't know anything about that, so I learnt an awful lot in that in, in that talk, which was um, well I say that you know whether I've learnt it or not, but I certainly <laughs> you know, understood it at the time. But uh, yeah, it was really uh, I think it's really brilliant, and uh, I'd like to have come to more really, but uh, you know, time limit. Yeah, maybe next year. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
15: Okay, thank you very much. No problem, thank you. One of today's press releases was entitled Supersonic Snowballs in Hell, How Comets Explode, Fizzle Out, or Survive a Flight Through the Sun's Atmosphere. So I interviewed John Brown, the Astronomer Royal for Scotland, who presented that research. I'm speaking to Professor Emeritus John Brown of uh, Glasgow University, and he's been working on um, predicting whether comets that go very close to the sun will survive their journey. So, the first thing I thought I'd ask you is how do you actually um, observe these comets when they get so very close to the sun, it's so bright?
19: Yeah, well, we've been seeing them approaching the sun for several decades, actually, but when they get in within about two or three solar radii, they, they get possibly fainter than the corona, so it becomes very difficult. And it hadn't been done until July last year, and uh, Carol Shriver and his team at Egypt, um, Lockheed Martin, In California, I I don't know exactly how he did it, but just around the same time as I had been thinking the theory of these things, he did some careful detective work and managed to make an astonishing movie of a comet. I can't can't remember what it's called now. It's got a long string of numbers, um, quite quite small one, a scooting in through the corona, and he he has a a nice movie. It's on the internet with a kind of a, a circular window around it to draw the eye. And it was done by looking in the ultraviolet with the solar dynamics observatory in space, so you have the advantage of mm-hmm. no sunlight, no scatter light. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, I think, the main movie was done in an ultraviolet wavelength of about 170 angstroms or so. So that helped to pick it out against the background, and that plus a very careful search in the right places, and they got a movie of it just fading out in the sun, in the lower corona, actually. So, these um, comets you refer to as snowballs in
15: the,
17: in the, in the yeah, title well of,
19: the, of the talk. That's what they are. I mean, they, they, they come from this Oort cloud or uh, somewhere far out in the solar system, and they're made of frozen ices and dust and so on. Uh, I think they've got a density of about roughly half that water, so they're quite fairly loose, dusty snowballs. And you know, this all goes back uh, to um, the early ideas, So uh, there was the, the dirty snowball and the icy mud ball and things like <laughs> that, uh, but, uh, that's basically, Fred Whipple from Harvard, he was a pioneer of all of this, and he proposed the dusty snowball mm-hmm. concept and so on, and that's what happens when there are snowballs approaching the sun and they, they progressively vaporise. How, how do they end up visiting the inner solar system in the first place? Well, these ones that we see are mostly um, well, mostly Kreutz group comets, but there's various group comets. And uh, these original what they call primordial comets, uh, they come from extremely far out from the solar system, almost out to the nearest star in huge circular orbits, and they go round and round there with hugely long periods. And now and again, a, a star nearby disturbs the cloud a bit, and some of these their orbit gets disturbed, and they start to fall in towards the sun. Uh, now that's a normal, long-period comet. hale Bob would probably be in that category. But sometimes these comets come in and they get so close to the sun, possibly Jupiter, that they get torn apart, the tides raised by the planet tear them apart, and they end up breaking up into a huge, long string of many small fragments. And we think that most of these sun grazers that we see belong to a group, uh, or groups, including the Kreutz group. So you get a string of them in almost the same orbit. And when I first ever heard of them in the '70s through the '80s, it was thought they should be very, very rare. Because they don't live very long, I guess. Um, I think just to think there would be that. Well, possibly that any that had come close would have been wiped out before. Mm. I suppose that's what you're saying. And uh, however, it turns out there's actually about the region of three a week. Uh, The patch. Sometimes it's more. Sometimes it's less. But uh, at least one a week, I would say. So they're really quite common things, So okay. these are all fragments of the same giant comet from the past. Right. And then when they come
15: in and, and, and they approach the sun, I, I guess the key part of your talk is that up to now it's been difficult to know whether the comet was going to be completely vaporised or yeah. whether it would survive. And I actually remember one of the recent ones where people were talking about it a lot, Comet Lovejoy, whether mm-hmm. it was going to, yes. as it passed the sun, come out the other side or not. And, yes. and you were able to say something about whether it would. And
19: yeah, well, I, wager, I tried to wager with my colleagues who were all working on this on the internet, uh, tried to get a decent... I'm not a betting man, but I decided to, to and gamble a uh, bet that it would make it. Uh, and it, well, it, it, nobody really wanted this. No, nobody took me up on it. It did actually come out the other side. But it turns out, I heard just last week, it came out the other side, but it no longer had a head, it was just a tail. (laughs) So it was almost wiped out. Mm. But I couldn't have said for sure. It's more the opposite way around. If it comes out, you can work out how heavy it must have been. Because the heavier it is, the the better it's chance of surviving. So by seeing when it dies or whether it dies, you can actually figure out the masses of comets, which is useful. I see. And how do you model
15: whether, um, whether comets will survive?
19: Well, it depends. If you're... It's, it turns out there's a sort of really critical point, uh, according to, to my modelling at least. If you come in with a, what they call the perihelion point, the closest point on the orbit to the sun, if that is bigger than about 1% above the, of the sun's radius above the surface. So it's a pretty tiny fraction. If you, if you skim, I call that a sun skimmer, uh, if you come in just above that, then the atmosphere doesn't really do much to the nucleus. Uh, it's just the sunlight that vaporises it. So, and they, how, whether they survive or not depends on their mass. Any that go significantly lower than that, and we haven't seen any for sure yet, and I call them some plungers or some plummeters. And they get into a denser part of the lower atmosphere, and because the way the sun's atmosphere is, it's got a very the density of the sun's atmosphere goes up very quickly as you go deeper. And once you get in there, you more well, done for. You're not mm. going to get back out. And uh, the, every time they travel another few hundred kilometres, the, the, the density is a factor of three or something higher. And the the ones in the corona, they vaporize reasonably slowly. You know, like maybe an hour, half an hour. So the corona is uh, extremely hot, but uh, Yeah, thin. well, have come to that point, yeah, it's very thin. The corona, in the corona, they vaporise only due to sunlight, and I'll explain why. Okay. Once they go deeper, sunlight becomes irrelevant, and it's the friction of the atmosphere, which can be enormous. Actually, if, if you could get near to the surface of this, the so-called surface of the sun, the photosphere, down there, the heating by the friction, which is what makes the, the, you know, the shuttle um, heat shield glow, that kind of friction, is 100,000 times more intense than the sunlight once you get really deep. So that's terminal. In the corona, there's been some silly misunderstandings in the, some of the stuff on the internet about Lovejoy. People saying Lovejoy miraculously survives the 2 million degree corona. Mm-hmm. And that's just wrong. The, the, cor- the hot corona has nothing to do with it. As you t- just said, the corona, although it's at 2 million degrees, is very tenuous. And I figured, if I got the sums right, if you were to put on your kind of uh, reflective... Jumpsuit um, to re- re- protect you from the sunlight, so sort of bright white, perfectly reflecting, and just lie there. The, the warmth you'd feel from the hot corona is only about the same as a sunny day in Manchester. Really? It's almost exactly about a uh, kilowatt per square metre of your body. And it would take about a year to vaporise it from it. It's not that that does it. It's nothing to do with that. It's the sunlight. Oh. Uh, it's, 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 Patrick Moore's very strong on this. If anyone talks about the corona being hot, he says, yes, well, it has a very high temperature, but it doesn't have any heat. So it
15: doesn't. It can't get things into thermal equilibrium. With well, it, I guess, it's, it's not in thermal
19: equilibrium. equilibrium. It's just so tenuous. It's, it's hot particles, but there's so few of them mm-hmm. touching you. You don't really feel it. Like okay. So and the comet doesn't feel it like very much either. So the corona <laughs> could be much hotter, and it still wouldn't make much difference.
15: And do you learn um, something about the Sun when, these, when
19: you observe these comets, or you, do you mainly well, learn about the composition well, of the comet? Well, in principle, we could learn both. At the moment, we're just starting to, to try and do each of these things. But uh, the thing that got me very excited is if, if, if the comet plummeted or whatever, especially in the, the case where it goes deep and explodes, uh, what you actually get is a whole comet exploding like a, what they call a flash spectrum. And if you had good observations of that in principle, you could maybe study the chemical composition of the whole comet. I mean, everything we've done so far, like uh, uh, Deep Impact and others, it's just been touching the surface. I don't mm-hmm. know what's inside really. So that, that potentially yeah, very good. also about the strength of comet, the masses of comets. But we've also seen with, especially with Lovejoy, uh, and the July 2011 comet, that they they, go, they pass through the atmosphere, and a fairly straight tail, just running behind as us usually happens to the comet. And suddenly, this tail whips and lashes around and it looks as if it's happening as the comet runs through uh, probably a strongly magnetic part of the corona. Okay. So we've now got comets as probes of the sun's atmosphere. That's why I'm giving a talk today about to the solar session because mm-hmm. there's potentially really maybe a whole new way of doing solar atmospheric physics as well as cometary physics. Okay. And I guess the last thing
15: I thought I'd ask you is, these comets, have they been around in their present form for a long time before they before they make their journey into the sun?
19: Uh, yeah, well, the, the big ones that come from way, way out, like hale watch so I think it kind of how many, tens or hundreds of thousands of years, I think the the group comets tend to be somewhat short of periods, maybe, I, I just guess, less than 10,000. Uh, so they've been around for a while. The only thing is, I mean, I'm very, very keen, to examine the first person who's worked at all the theory of... Uh, the kind of impact or the explosion ones, <clears throat> and I would obviously like to see some, uh, but most of them may already have gone. You know, if they go that deep, they're going to be destroyed for sure. Mm-hmm. So, if they've been around more than once, that's it; it's all okay. over. So, uh, to see those, we'd really depend on the orbit being a bigger orbit being disturbed to go a bit deeper into the sun. Okay. Uh, they've all been around for quite some time, but not as old as the solar system. Right, I see. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much. Okay,
15: pleasure. There have been poster sessions throughout the conference with people presenting their work and there was an award, one in geophysics and one in astronomy, for the best posters. I talked to Ewan Barr, the winner of the Astronomy Poster Award, about his work and he's a pulsar hunter. I've just caught up with um, the winner of the Astronomy Poster Competition at this year's now. He's from the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy. It's PhD student Ewan Barr. So maybe you could just tell us
20: quickly what the post is about. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I've been working at the Max Planck Institute for the last two and a half years, and in this time, um, we've been using the Ethelsberg Telescope to do targeted pulsar searches into what we call unassociated Fermilat sources. So these are gamma-ray point sources, which there is no known companion, either blazar, Pulsar, AGN, or so forth. And uh, what we do is we, we spend a long time integrating on these sources in the radio and perform a normal pulsar search on them. And uh, we we look to find pulsars which can't be found in the gamma rays. Now, this is interesting because uh, the LAT itself receives very low photon counts um, from, from gamma ray pulsars in general, and so if you have any kind of binary motion in your system, it completely obscures the rotational frequency of the pulsar. So what this means is the LAT selects against finding millisecond pulsars. Um, and with the, the high photon counts that come from radio observations we can bypass this selection bias and we can find millisecond pulsars in this data and so after conducting a, a search of almost 300 of these sources we came across uh, a new uh, binary MSP system millisecond pulsar system that is um, this is a 2.65 millisecond pulsar and a binary orbit with a, a white dwarf and what's interesting about this is that the White Dwarf appears to be a very light um, system of about 17 Jupiter masses. And this, this implies that the system is what is known as a, a Black Widow system, in which you have a, a White Dwarf and you have a normal normal evolution for the binary, it's gone through a low mass ray binary system, and what happens is the pulsar wind is so strong that it's gradually ripping material off the White Dwarf companion, and so what we have is this ablation of the White Dwarf causing it to lose a great deal of mass. Now, in the context of other Fermi discoveries, this is, this is interesting. Is Before Fermi came along, we only knew of two of these types of systems. And now, with, with uh, radio searches by uh, observatories all across the world, we now know of 11 that have come from this. And this really highlights the importance of these kind of searches, these kind of targeted searches, as they uncover uh, populations of pulsars that, that are lost in normal pulsar surveys. So, yeah, with with this, we we look to kind of continue to do these things in the future. Um, Fermi will keep on running for many years yet, and hopefully it will continue providing these targeting points for us to follow up, and hopefully there's some more pulsars in there too. So was that millisecond pulsar then originally detected in
15: gamma rays and then followed up with radio?
20: Yeah, essentially what the unassociated sources are, a huge mix of things. Most of them are AGN or blazars, and what you can do is you you can fit the spectra, of these things, and what you do by ranking them in certain ways, you you find a probability of pulsarness, let's call it. Um, And what we do is we we take these ones that have been, what we call gamma-ray selected, they've been found as point sources in the gamma-ray, and we follow them up with very deep radio observations. And this allows us to to find weak pulsars, which are selected against the normal pulsar surveys. Okay, well I wish
15: you all the success in finding more millisecond pulsars that way in the future. Thank you very much. As the conference due to a close... I got the views of PhD student Kira Quinn on the planetary session that she was attending. Despite her attempt to get away, I've uh, I've captured a PhD student Kira Quinn who was in the last session, one of the last sessions of the conference on planetary science, and uh, and 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 told her that she can't leave until she tells me a little bit about about what happened in that session. So, Kira, what was your favourite thing about the session?
21: Um, My favourite talk was uh, the explanation of how we characterise atmosphere of rocky planets. So these are obviously really exciting objects because they're the best places for finding life outside of Earth. Okay. So the talk was um, explaining why new telescopes such as the James Webb Space Telescope and the ELT are going to be really, really useful for finding more of these small rocky planets and the spectral signatures that we need to find to find life.
15: Oh, so they're going to be able to find out that that about their composition and what's in their atmosphere and things like that?
21: Yeah, so they're looking for biosignatures which is like methane and water and CO2 and ozone Some, that means they have a, an atmosphere and then could hold life we're also looking for the presence of liquid water not ice because these biosignatures can't come through it but if there's liquid water then we might be able to detect these these molecules.
15: Oh, that's exciting. So you're at Cardiff University. I am. What do you work on there? Is it related to this at all?
21: Uh, not really. I work on star formation, so I guess there's a bit of an overlap that you get star formation and planet formation kind of happening in roughly the same way. Hmm. But I work on isolated star formation, so that's low-mass stars forming on their own outside of giant molecular cloud structures.
3: Okay.
15: And you had a poster, was it, this, this, uh, this conference? I did,
21: yes. Yes, in the first poster session.
15: So, so what did it cover in particular?
21: Um, it covered a subset of the of the cores that I'm studying. I have a sample of about 40 of these small isolated molecular clouds. So
15: they're like pre-stellar objects, is that what you'd call them?
21: Yeah, th- some of them aren't even gravitationally bound. They're mostly just associations of gas. Okay. We don't know if they're ever going to form stars. Most of them don't have any signatures of it yet, so that's why they're interesting. They're the very first signpost of, of star formation. That's what we're looking for. So these, these cores are interesting because they're single star formation events. Normally they form in big clusters and you're not sure if stars form the way they do because there's lots of them together or if one star formation event causes them or things like that so having a little one stars forming on their own that's that's interesting and new
15: okay well thank you very much so that's the end of the conference uh people are on their way home and i thought i'd just finish off by summarizing a couple of the other press releases that we had today um, one of them is about using pulsars as interstellar beacons so that future astronauts can navigate their way across the universe. Now, I probably wouldn't say universe, I'd say maybe galaxy. Um, but this is an idea that's been around for a while, and it was, work has been presented on it by Professor Werner Becker from the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics in Garching, Germany. And in particular, he wants to use X-ray pulses as these navigational beacons. Now, the interesting thing about pulsars is with their timing, when you look at the timing solution, we look at when the pulses arrive, it tells you something about not only the spin period of the pulsar, but also how far away it is and how fast you are moving relative to that pulsar. So if you make a timing solution from Earth, and then you go off in a spaceship, you can look at how the timing solution changes for a pulsar And it can tell you about how fast you're going in the spaceship relative to the Earth and how far away from the Earth you've gone, and also in what direction. So in principle, you can navigate using these things. It is really interesting because it is technically very challenging, and this is why sometimes people are a bit cautious about it. Um, You can lose a timing solution if a pulsar, for example, glitches, if it suddenly spins up, as occasionally they do. So you'd have to use a number of pulsars. Um, The other thing, of course, is taking the equipment with you on the spaceship to make the detection And then another technical problem is how do you keep the clock on the spaceship synchronised with the clock on the Earth? Because it's very, very important to keep your clock accurate in order to keep track of the timing solution from the pulsar. So you need a very good clock. However, Professor Becker has suggested that pulsar navigation could be used for interplanetary spacecraft and eventually for interstellar spacecraft. And it could be to augment artificial signals for navigation. And the other press release uh, relates to the work of Sergei Zharkov, who works at University College London's Mullard Space Science Laboratory, and he was talking about how solar eruptions cause sunquakes. Now, sunquakes might be a bit of an unfamiliar word, but they're analogous to earthquakes, only a lot more powerful, and they tend to be associated with coronal mass ejections, eruptions of material from the sun. Now, by observing during 2011, Dr Zharkov and his co-authors were able to find that solar flares were related to sunquakes that could be a thousand times more powerful than the earthquake that struck Japan in March 2011 and there's been a, a prediction of of sunquakes 40 years ago and they are sort of ripples coming outwards on the sun because of course the sun's not solid but is but is rather a plasma which is like a very hot gas dr Zharkov is uh, analogizing to a stone dropped into a pond causing ripples but the actual release of energy that causes them is below the solar surface. And this actually produces sound waves that produce ripples, that they're, they're pressure waves. So that's sunquakes. And that concludes today's episode, the fourth and final one from the National Astronomy Meeting in Manchester 2012. We really hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. It's been manic, but it's been great fun, and we've all learned a huge amount. This episode was presented, edited and produced by Mark Perver so we should be bringing you further interviews from the meeting during the forthcoming Jodcast episodes. And until then, Jod on!